prepared for this night? Because the, the, the Vikings could win. And then they would go against the Packers and they would be playing when you get on stage. And I was like, oh. Yeah, it's not that big of a deal probably. Um, actually, I was really prepared. I was really prepared because I thought I would just get up and say, it's been years and it's time. The Vikings were made for such a time as this. Let's go out. I was, gonna, I was ready. That was it. I was going to go, let's go, you know, and leave. And then we were done. It would have been perfect. So I got, I got four stories, four stories for, yeah, congratulations to the Chiefs fans. In the, there's a few of you. Um, uh, I'm going to tell four stories tonight. Uh, three of them about food. One is the, the second meanest thing I've ever done to somebody. We do not speak of the first. I don't know why I use that accent, but that's, we don't talk about the first thing. The second thing that happened, worst, meanest thing I've ever done to somebody. Um, we'll just call this guy Phil, because that's his name. Um, <laughs> Phil, Phil sat in front of me in uh, sophomore year of uh, language arts class. I was in this weird language arts history class, like mixed together for like two hours instead of just one, and we took a little break in between. Anyway, that's not important for the story. Uh, he sat in front of me, and... Uh, yeah, I wasn't friends with Phil. I didn't really talk to Phil. He wasn't in the same group of friends as me. And, uh, but he sat in front of me in class, and normally we didn't talk to each other. We didn't interact. But on this day, for some reason, uh, he was really irritated with me. And I, I couldn't figure out why for a little while. Uh, but it, it had to do with my feet being on his chair. You know that space under your chair on the desk where you could put your books? My feet were on his chair, and he didn't, he didn't like that. He was really bothered. And I think it was because uh, my teacher didn't let me doodle in class which meant with ADHD kind of stuff, you, you just tap a lot and move a lot. So apparently he was not too happy with his chair shaking the whole time that class was going on. And he, and he, but he didn't tell me that was the problem. He just turned around and was like, stop it. And I'm like, stop what? Like I wasn't paying attention to the fact that I just didn't know. He's like, oh, and he just got irritated and he turned around. And then a little bit later, he, he's like trying to hit me with his elbow and pushing his desk against me. I'm like, what is going on? So I start pushing his chair a little bit. He's pushing my chair. We're pushing, but we're not. Teacher's looking. Push his chair back again. And then all of a sudden I see him. He's just, there's a blotchy redness on the back of his neck. And he's getting irritated. And then I see him doing something with his arms. He's like, arms moving. I'm like, what's he doing? I look down. There's red pen all over my new light-washed jeans that I got from Pacific Sun. He has my repacks on. Some of you are good. All right. And I paid for them myself. These are my nice new jeans, and now they have red pen on them. And uh, I was quite irritated. So then I started thinking some about what I was going to do to Phil. Because he clearly didn't get the message to stop acting the way he was acting. Uh, and he didn't want to mess with me, I thought. I had never done anything mean before, but all the things I was thinking of, like, what could I do, what could I do, started having these um, revenge fantasies during class. I thought, he goes the same direction I do when we're done. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to book him. You guys ever book somebody? Maybe it's called debooked in your school. You can't do this anymore. It's bullying. Um, <laughs> Um, my wife said, she went, what did you do to Phil? And I said, I booked him. She goes, no, it's debooked. I was like, you went to a school with better test scores than our school. We called it booked. We booked it. So, so uh, he went down the main stairwell. 
There's only three stairwells in our school. We went to a school of uh, almost 2,000 students, and there's this main stairwell that almost everybody used. And I was like, that's the stairwell. That's where this is going to happen. So class is done, and I'm following him. I have this feeling like, right, maybe I shouldn't do this. And he's a couple of feet in front of me. He's going down the steps. And I instantly regretted it because um, I don't even know how it all happened. Everything slowed down. Suddenly, his, his trapper keeper, <laughs> which was close shut with the Velcro, burst open. And all the papers inside, the loose leaf and other extra notebooks and stuff, didn't fall. They went into the air. And they're flying all around the stairwell that now is filled with hundreds of students going up and down, up and down. And, and his books did fall. And those are getting kicked as people go. And I'm just kind of mortified, but just kind of just watching this all take place in front of me. And he starts to kind of trip as he's going for his books. And like $3.58 falls out of his pocket because that's how much lunch costs with a milkshake. Falls out of his pocket and rolls down the steps. And I'm like, how does that happen? And I turn and look again and his like shoe is flying off. And I'm going, I I just hit his books. His whole life is falling apart in front of us. And he didn't know who did it. He had no idea. And I just walked down the steps and heard the rumbling of paper falling on the steps and, and nobody helping him and him frantically picking up the papers as quick as he could with his glasses half turned off of his face. It sounds way meaner than I wanted it to sound. Um, here, here's what happens, though, I think. When, when we can't manipulate people into changing, we can't modify their behavior And revenge is what is set on our hearts. For a lot of us, the next step is not to, if we can't make people change, the next step is to make them pay. I don't know if you've ever tried to make somebody pay for what they've done to you, but that's a little bit of what happens in the story we've been talking about. And that's what Haman was all up to, the villain in our story. He was was all about trying to get somebody who wouldn't change their behavior who wouldn't modify what they were doing, he said, fine, I'll make them pay. Not just him, but his whole race. I'll make them pay. That'll teach them. Esther, the story, here's the first story of of a meal. Esther gets done with the fast. What does she do? She doesn't go running into the the king. She says, uh, I'm going to plan a banquet. I'm going to plan a meal. Which I think is smart on her part, right? I mean, she's a smart, or she's just hungry. She's been fasting for three days. But either way, she plans this meal. I think it's God-ordained, because this is what the book is about, is teaching us that God's timing is intersecting with our timing. She goes into the meal, or she goes into the king, and she does do the thing. She says, this could get me killed, but I'll do it. And she goes, and, and something about uh, what happens in that moment, and think about it again, it's, this, is, this is the king who... Last time, he had an interaction uh, with the, a queen who did something she shouldn't do. She ended up dead. And she puts the golden scepter out, or he puts the golden scepter out, and, and Esther's allowed to, to come enter the court. And he says this, and we talk about, or I talked earlier about the ironic reversals that happen in the book of Esther. The last time ended up in somebody's death. This time, 
Instead of, him ask, instead of him saying, you do this for me, he says, what can I do for you? My queen, boy, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? I think something's changed in Esther that, that he could pick up on that he has no idea. Because when you spend some time with intimacy with God, something about you changes. So she walks in and he sees something in her and says, what can, what can I do for you? Like, if you ask for half the kingdom, it's yours. Really? And you'd think that'd be the moment that, that Esther would be like, okay, I got to tell you. And she says, oh, I just I want to have a banquet. I want to have a meal. And she had 12 months of preparation to know what kind of banquet to throw. It wasn't coincidence that she went through 12 months of training. Okay. She says, oh, yeah, yeah, invite that Haman guy. I want him there too. Okay. King sends for Haman. Hey, get ready. We're having this big banquet. Haman's like, oh, yeah, I'm so important. I'm going to this banquet. And he shows up. They're at the banquet, having a good time, gets done, and the king says, hey, what, what, do you want to, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want? Half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. She says, ah, uh, tomorrow, let's have another banquet. Now, something's going on here, right? God's timing has to be playing into this because at this point, if it was you and me, like, here's the chance to modify, to change. I, like, all I have to do is get this word out there. And she says, another banquet. And here's what I think, and I'm totally reading in between the lines in this story. But I think that God was trying to give Haman a second chance. God was trying to give Haman a second chance after this meal. But Haman leaves, and he's feeling good about himself. But remember, he can't change somebody's behavior, and revenge has taken hold of his heart, and he's walking along, and he's had a little bit too much to drink, and he sees Mordecai again. And that Mordecai will not bow down to him. And he goes home and he's like, what am I going to do about this? And somebody's like, well, dude, you're like second in command. Like, you can do whatever you want about it. Why don't you like just him? He's done. Good idea. So he plans to kill Mordecai. And he starts building a gallows 70 feet high to hang him on. 70 feet high. He's like, I, I got to get permission from the king to go do this. So in between these two banquets, he's on his way. He's like, okay. I'm important, I'm going to go get the king, he's going to say this, and he's on his way. But something happened, too, to the king between that meal and the next meal. Because a meal is never just a meal. After the, the first meal, the king goes to sleep that night, and he's restless, something's stirring in him, and he wakes up. So, hey, bring me the book of history. Bring me, like, the Chronicles. I want to read a little bit. Somebody read me a story. And it just so happens that the story that's read is the story of Mordecai, who heard the plot to kill the king, overheard in the gates two eunuchs that were going to plot to kill the king, and he alerted the king, and he saved the day. But nothing was ever done for him. And the king asked, like, what was ever done for Mordecai, this guy who saved me? Nothing. Haman comes walking in right then. Hey, king, I need to talk to you. Hey, before you talk to me, hey, what do you do with somebody who needs to be honored by the king, Haman? What do you do with somebody who's done something for the king that's important? How do you show, how could the king show how important somebody is that he wants to honor? Haman's like, he's talking about me. Oh, oh, you dress him up in robes and you put him on the royal horse and you parade him through town and say, look at the one the king is so pleased with. Mordecai's like, or uh, Xerxes says, that's a great idea. Go get Mordecai, Haman, and do that for him. Huh? 
Mordecai goes and gets out. I just picture him going, like getting his stuff all ready, and he's like, he's supposed to walk Mordecai around the city. This is the one with the king is so pleased. No, no, Mordecai's like, say it louder. Say it a little louder. He gets done with that, and, and by the time he finishes that, Mordecai doesn't really know what's happening, but Haman's starting to think, what is going on here? And just as he starts worrying about what might actually be happening, the king's servants come and get him and say, hey, second, second banquet. They're at the second banquet. Things are going to go. That banquet goes two days. Remember, we're in Persia. At the end of the, se- the second day, while they're having wine, surprise, the king says again, Esther, I'll give you half my kingdom. What do you want? That's the timing for Esther to speak up. She says, here's the deal. Somebody's been plotting to kill me and my people. I'm Jewish, and there's this, this bounty out for us, this genocide that's going to happen. He says, who, who would ever dare? Who would have it in their heart to have that kind of vengeance? This guy right next to you. The story says that because he had so much wine, he was enraged. And he runs out and he goes, I'm going to find people to take Haman away. But while he's out, Haman begs for his life at Esther's feet. And as he's begging for his life, the king comes back and says, now you're trying to assault my wife, the queen? He says, what am I going to do about you? And there's this eunuch standing there. And he's like, hey, he's got some uh, gallows hanging right here. We could just take care of this. (laughs) And that's what happens. Remember in, in, in... Persia, this law exists that he can't just change the law. And Esther says, here's, what are we going to do? And so they come up with a plan to write another law that says all the Jews can defend themselves on this day that anybody would try to attack them and take them out. And the Jews prevail. And another law is written that says, by Esther and Mordecai and the king, to have a feast, and it's called Purim. And the word pur means dice. Dice is to just cast lots, just the odds. The odds are that God's going to save. A meal's never just a meal. I was out with my dad one day, right before I left for college. He said, I want to take you to to dinner. I don't need to say dinner. I think it was more like brunch. He said, I want to take you out for some food. Now, my dad had never taken me out one-on-one. Oh, okay. He's like, yeah, you're going away to college. Let's just go celebrate. So we went to Omega, which is a Greek restaurant. And Greek restaurants in Chicago are the best. It was amazing food. Had a skillet with eggs and all this stuff. My dad and I were talking. My dad doesn't really share his emotions and feelings much. He had never said, I love you. I knew he loved me. I always felt it and always knew it, but he never said those words. And so we're eating at Omega, and I have my big skillet, and he has his food, and we're going back and forth, and we're talking. And I've talked to my dad about this day, and see, there's never, it wasn't something that he had said necessarily planned on saying, but he knew he wanted to say something. We get to the end of the meal, and he says, Jake, I want to say something to you. Now, it's important that you understand, um, my family was really disappointed in the college I was going to. 
because I don't know if you heard me talk earlier, I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to be an architect. And so I'd worked really hard to, to make that a reality. And part of working really hard, because my parents said, we're never going to be able to send you to school and help you pay for it. It's just not going to happen. You're going to have to find a way to get scholarships. And my grades weren't great. They were good enough to get into schools. And yeah, I had the athletic stuff and some other things, but I wasn't going to get there. So the plan was that I would work at the local country club and they had this caddy scholarship. So I started when I was 13 and I started working as a caddy and I worked my way up all the way to be an honor caddy. That's how I met Michael Jordan. It's a true story. I walked down the fairway with Michael Jordan. It was, it was really cool. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I walked down the first fairway with Michael Jordan and it was like first thing in the morning and our footprints were in the dew and I turned around and I was like, those are my footprints. That's not Michael Jordan's footprints. <laughs> He said, he said to me, are you my caddy? And I was like, no, <laughs> I didn't caddy for him. I was a caddy. Uh, <laughs> I was caddying for somebody else, and I had to walk out. And I go, that's your caddy up there. He goes, well, why aren't you my caddy? No, he said, uh, who, well, who, who's the best caddy here? I said, me? He <laughs> said, why aren't you my caddy? I said, because that's the caddy master's son right there. And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Sorry, that's not part of the story. <laughs> I'd worked really hard to, to get to that point. My parents were proud of me. My grandparents were proud of me. I got the scholarship. It was, it was, it was going to come. But there was a catch to the scholarship. You had to go to a certain school that the scholarship committee said, that's the school we want you to go to. Full ride. Books, housing, everything. I won't say the school that it was because there's still a part of me that's like, hi. But something happened between getting that scholarship and choosing a school, and God changed the direction of my life, got a hold of my life in a way that, yeah, it changed the trajectory, trajectory but it changed me, regardless of the trajectory. I remember sitting in the, the scholarship room where I had to talk to do this interview, and getting done and walking out and saying, I'm not saying yes to this. And I got home and called my parents and said, I'm not going to that school and I'm not taking the scholarship. I'm going to go be a pastor. What? <laughs> my grandparents didn't talk to me for a while because it was the grandpa that got me that job. Dad's sitting across from me. He said, I want you to know I'm proud of you. I admire the person of character and conviction you've become, and someday I want to be like you. A meal is never just a meal. There's one more meal I want to talk about. It was a feast. It was a day of a feast, right before a day of a feast, but it was also the day before our Lord was betrayed. He sat around a group of, a table with a group of 12 friends, one who would betray him, one who would deny him, and 10 more who would run. He broke bread and he drank from a cup. He took ordinary elements with these ordinary people who had experienced extraordinary things. And he took those elements and he said, these will remind you of some beyond ordinary events. And after everything occurred, it became the reminder the reminder 
that all things through Christ are being set to right. The reminder that through Christ all things are reconciled. A meal is never just a meal. May you and I leave this place and make time for meals with our family, with our strangers, with, with friends and with enemies, with allies and with opponents. May we never step into a meal and have it be just a meal. May we trust that God is going to do what only God can do. Amen. 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 You guys are dismissed.